0: So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 29. While you're turning, I want to give you a little bit of background, a short introduction to this psalm before we stand to read it. That's because this psalm is a little bit unique from the other psalms that we've studied so far, in that it is entirely built of praise to the Lord. There is no section of lament. There is nothing but pure unadulterated praise to God for who he is. In fact, if you have an outline uh, this morning and you're following along with your notes by way of introducing this psalm, we can note first of all that in Psalm 29, the Lord's name is exalted. In Psalm 29, the Lord's name is exalted. When I was in high school, I wrote a paper in history class about the Protestant Reformation, and I was uh, focusing in on the reformer, Martin Luther. In particular, I was interested not just in his preaching, but in how he used music uh, to further the Reformation. Uh, I remember one of the quotes vividly from the paper. He said, quote, the devil has no right to all the good music. The devil has no right to all the good music. So you see what Luther would do is he would take the barroom songs of Wittenberg, Germany and set those tunes with lyrics of him to praise God. So the everyday German would be able to sing along because they knew the tune to the song, but the lyrics were shaping the hearts and the minds of those people. The Reformation spread that way through song. I think that's a good way of trying to understand and think about how Psalm 29 likely came to exist. You see, it seems evident that there was some sort of poem uh, of the Canaanite religion to the god Baal that had at least some similarities to this one. And what King David did was, like Martin Luther, he transformed that poem And used it as a polemic or a strong written attack against the Canaanites and their God, Baal. So what you see is the covenant name of Yahweh. The name that Brother David so properly introduced for us in the call to worship this morning. What God revealed himself, how he revealed himself to the people of Israel is I am who I am. And that covenant name appears 18 times in just eleven short verses of this psalm, it's all over the psalm, as if to say, "Our God is far superior to the Canaanite god Baal." David, John, or excuse me, James Johnson explains in his commentary that for ancient people, the loudest noise that they had ever heard. Think about this. You know, we're used to sonic booms and planes going off around here and things, whatever. They, the loudest thing they could think of was thunder. And when the thunder would come over the fields, they would be terrified. What could make such deafening sounds? They thought it must have been some sort of god. They believed it was a storm god, the god Baal-Hadad. And when they heard the thunder, they thought it was the voice of Baal. Now, On the one hand, they were terrified of the destruction that a thunderstorm and the storms might bring. But on the other hand, the fall thunderstorms would bring the much-needed rain for the parched ground in the land of Canaan and would produce the crops. It would make the earth fertile. And so while they both feared Baal, they also worshipped him because he was the one, they thought, that brought the rain to bring the crops. Now... When Israel entered the land of of Canaan, they were confronted with Baal worship all around them. In Egypt, they didn't have to worry about thunderstorms or the need for rain because the Nile would flood and then through irrigation, it would make the ground fertile. But when they came to Canaan, just like the Canaanites, the Israelites would be tempted to worship this false god, the storm god, Baal. And so it seems that in part... This psalm was a powerful way to teach the Israelites who is really in charge of the thunder and of the storms. It would become an easy teaching tool for parents and rabbis to use with their children. Every time a storm would arise, Psalm 29 could be recited. And this beautiful psalm would lead them to worship and praise the Lord instead of the false god Baal. So with that background in mind, I'd like for us to stand and read Psalm chapter 29 together. A Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we may see wondrous works from your law. Lord, may we behold your glory in this psalm. Help us, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, in addition to the repetition of the divine name, the Lord's name being exalted 18 times, as you've heard in this psalm, there are obviously some other repeated themes in Psalm 29. You might have picked up on the phrase, the voice of the Lord, or the Lord's glory. So secondly, on your outlines, if you're following along and taking notes, we note in Psalm 29, the Lord's glory is commended. The Lord's glory is, Is commended. David commends the glory of God to the angels in heaven. He implores the angels to worship the Lord. He says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name and worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Or perhaps, as the ESV footnote puts it, dressed in holy attire, arrayed as heavenly beings. Come appropriately dressed to worship this holy and awesome God. Out of the gates, this thing, this psalm teaches us a few things about the glory of God. First of all, the glory of God is far too glorious for fallen human minds to fully comprehend or to adequately delight in. And so David invokes the angels to praise God because human praise is simply not enough. The majesty of God. Revealed in the storm. And the power of God is worthy of all creation. Every created being ascribing glory to his name. Glory to God in the highest is how David begins this psalm. But secondly, notice God's glory can only be ascribed. The glory of God can only be ascribed. It can't be given to God It can only be said about him. Romans chapter 11, Paul says, Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Who can give a gift to the Lord that he could be repaid? He is the one worthy of praise. Whether the praise is from human beings or angels, we can only acknowledge His supreme worth and bow down humbly in worship of His glory. We can never make God more glorious with our praise. All we can do is ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. So that's what David does. He commends the glory of God to the angels for their adoration and praise of him. But then note, in addition to commending the Lord's glory, we see in verses 3 through 9 of Psalm 29, the Lord's voice is described. The Lord's voice is described, which is actually kind of an understatement, isn't it? It's repeatedly described over and over again. It's described seven times. This phrase, the voice of the Lord, is used to be exact, which may have been an intentional use of that phrase, seven being the number for perfection, or perhaps drawing our minds back to the seven days of creation when the voice of the Lord thundered over the waters. Whatever the case, the voice of the Lord is described as a thundering storm. James Montgomery Boyce notes, if you don't have a poetic spirit, you're not going to appreciate this psalm. Okay? So some of you really scientifically minded people are out there critically analyzing this psalm with your 21st century mind. That's not the point. If you're prone to think to yourself that the voice of God is not really in the thunder, thunder is just the clashing of differently charged electronic particles, you're missing the forest for the trees. And pardon the pun, because there are forests of trees in Psalm 29. To appreciate this psalm, you have to go in your mind's eye to the field. Or maybe to a week ago Monday, when the storm was coming in. And the storm of some ferocious kind is terrifying your soul. As you hear the thunder and the light, see the lightning. And then you consider it is God directing this storm. In other words, thunder and the thunderstorm is a poetic image. It's an image for an even greater reality, meaning the actual voice of God is infinitely beyond the power that any thunderstorm that we'll ever experience. So this poetic description of the Lord's voice begins in verse 3, out over the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know if you have maps in the back of your Bible. Mine's map number 2. But if you follow along in the map, it's out in the Mediterranean Sea. And it moves east over the area of Lebanon. And then it moves to Mount Hermon, which the Sidonians called Sirion. That's the name that comes in Psalm 29, Sirion. So it's moving from west out over the waters, over the forests of the cedar trees in Lebanon, to Mount Hermon. And then commentators kind of Very, I tend to think that the next place is going, Kadesh, is actually the Kadesh on the Orontes River in Syria between Damascus and Aleppo, so on the northern part of the area. There is another Kadesh, you know, Kadesh-Bernia, on the southern border of Israel, but it seems that thunderstorms didn't often come in and then go all the way south through the land. So to me, it seems likely it went from West to east on the northern part of the Canaanites in the Canaanite land. In either case, this storm has movement to it. It sweeps through the cedar groves, sweeps over mountain ranges, flashes lightning, and carries its destruction through the wilderness and forests alike. The language is fearfully descriptive. Describing mountain ranges as being shaken so terribly that they look like they're skipping around like calves. Describes powerful cedar trees as though they were snapped in half like toothpicks. In short, I think verse 4 is an appropriate summary when David says, The voice of the Lord is powerful, and the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The response of all of God's people is in verse 9. It's wonder and awe in his temple. Verse 9 says in his temple, all cry glory. Can you say that today? Say glory. Glory. The people of God joining in the chorus. The angels had already begun to sing in the heavens, giving glory to God, which leads us then to verses 10 and 11 which form uh, a perfectly symmetrical frame around verses 3 through 9. In the original Hebrew, uh, verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 all have 16 Hebrew words. So the frame being formed here. And of those 16 words, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, appears four times at four of the 16 words in both sections. So as often uh, the writers of poems would, this draws attention to the center, makes a frame around the Lord's voice. But we move on to verses 10 and 11, where I'd like us to see something very reassuring for us. As God's people, having considered the raw power and frankly the sheer destruction left in the wake of God's glorious power on display in the storm. You see, what we see fourthly in verse 10 is is the Lord's throne is occupied. The Lord's throne is occupied, which is really good news, right? You know, Psalm 29 verse 10 says, the Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. And we're going to do a little in-depth study on this verse here, and I've chosen the New American Standard version to kind of teach you a way that you can learn from using other versions of the Bible in your own study. First of all, the words, the flood, they only appear uh, in Hebrew in uh, Genesis chapter 6 through 11, only referring to Noah's flood. That was, of course, the greatest example of The uh, nature being directed by the Lord to unleash his power in judgment, as it were. But notice how the NASB, in a very wooden translation, it goes mainly word for word, uh, renders this. The Lord sat, past tense, at the flood. Now I'm going to skip as king and tell you why in a minute. The Lord sat at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Anytime you're reading the NASB or also the New King James Version, these are the two that I know of, that when they supply words that are there for translation's sake, they put them in italics. So some of you NASB people know that. Like that's why you like that Bible. It helps you understand the original Hebrew would have read the Lord sat at the flood, which in this case you probably would have been smart enough of a Bible student to know which flood was being referred to. So you wouldn't have needed to know the Hebrew to know it was the, the flood, right? The Lord sat at the flood. And then it says in the second line, yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Now that is all in the original Hebrew, which tells us why they supplied as king in the first line, because of parallel poetry. It's, it's furthering our understanding of something. And so we can say the sitting that's taking place is the sitting of a king on his throne. So the Lord sat at the flood, sat as king at the flood. And the Lord sits as king forever. Now I do all of this to show, again, how you can use your own English Bible. Maybe get another translation and lay it side by side in your own Bible study. But back to the main point of the verse, which is simply God is not wielding unthinkable power indiscriminately or purposelessly God is sovereign like a king over his power he is in control of that power and his judgment demonstrated in its greatest severity at the flood of Noah's day is the judgment of a king on his throne in complete control David says he sat on the throne then and he sits enthroned Now and forever, which is massively helpful to our souls today as we consider this psalm. How can you, how can I sing in the middle of a storm? How can you join in my former youth pastor Mark Hall's song and say, I'll praise you in this storm? And I will lift my hands, for you are who you are, no matter where I am. How can you get to that place? Well, you can sing because God is the king over this flood. He is enthroned as king forever. And whatever sense of uh, terror or severe awe-inspiring act of nature that may unfurl before your eyes, you can know God is on his throne And more importantly, as verse 11 helps explain, his people, God's people, need not be afraid. Why is that? Well, read verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Or as the CSB renders it, the Lord gives his people strength. And the Lord blesses his people with peace. In one of the commentaries I read, there was a story about how in 2011, the writer of the commentary went to Joplin with a team from his church to help with a cleanup from an EF5 tornado. They worked on a house that had been ripped in two, ripped in half. The roof and the entire front half of the house were literally torn away. The ceilings, the front walls, the living room, were completely gone, along with the wall to the kitchen. So standing on the street, you could look into the house all the way to the back to the kitchen and see the back wall of the house, all of that exposed to the sky after this powerful storm. And as he describes it, there was one shelf on one of the walls that was still standing, one shelf. That shelf had the wife's small collection of glass hummingbirds on the shelf. And when the family came to see the wreckage the next day, those little birds hadn't moved an inch. Winds raging 200 miles an hour had torn off the whole front of the house, but somehow the storm did not touch those fragile glass hummingbirds. the takeaway is obvious. God may rage in judgment like a storm, but he leaves his fragile people untouched. God knows how to uproot his enemies and preserve his people. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. What a powerful reminder for us today as we think of the flood. We think of God's provision for his people. And we think of this psalm. Which leads me to my fifth and final point, which is really kind of an application from all of this psalm, particularly in verse 11. And that is, the Lord's people are blessed. The Lord's people are blessed it has been noted about this psalm that its beginning is glory to God in the highest, and its ending is, and on earth, peace with those with whom he is pleased. Isn't that interesting? Are you thinking of Luke chapter 2 and 14 where the angels announced to the shepherds the Messiah's birth, and we read glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. His people. I want to ask you, friends, today, everyone within the sound of my voice, is the Lord pleased with you? Is the Lord pleased with you? Will you find the voice of God to be ultimately like the terror of a severe and destructive storm? Or will you be blessed with strength and with peace? Amongst God's people The Bible says his voice goes out to all the earth And his words go to the end of the world There is no speech or language, the psalmist wrote Where his voice is not heard God has written the nature of his eternal And thunderously powerful existence All across the stars of the sky he has made known the terrifying power of his majesty in nature and this extraordinarily vast creation. But more than all that, God has made his voice most clear in the Bible. We call it the Word of God. God expressed himself directly to the Jewish forefathers and the prophets. He made himself known in self-declosure through the law, the prophets, and the writings of the Old Testament. But more than that, the writer of Hebrews tells us that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And Jesus upholds the universe By the word of his power, Jesus is the clearest and most unmistakable expression of God's glory. He is the word of God incarnate. And by his word, he upholds the entire universe. I want you to know that there can be no mistaking how to become one of those with whom God is pleased. That is, How to be part of his people, whom he shields, strengthens, protects, and provides with peace. John's gospel says it most clearly when it describes Jesus' coming to this earth. In the first chapter of John, the writer says he came, that is Jesus came, to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That means, in a broad and general sense ethnically jewish people did not receive the promised messiah of the old testament there were some of course who did his disciples and many others but it was a relatively small amount that received him as the revealed messiah to come of the old testament so john says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but here's the good news But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Listen, it wasn't about being born Jewish. Paul makes that very clear that it never really was. It was about being circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. Read Romans chapter 2. Being a Christian, hear me, does not happen because your parents are Christians. Being a Christian doesn't happen because you try harder to be good. Being a Christian is a gift of God to be received by faith through believing in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead, as Romans 4.25 says, for your justification. John continues in verse 14 of chapter one, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so I ask you today, will you behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, the Savior? and his shed blood on the cross. Because we've been studying Psalm 29 today, we've paused to consider things like the Lord's name, the Lord's glory, the Lord's voice, the Lord's enthronement, and the Lord's people. And I'm here to tell you today, without the slightest bit of hesitation, all of those are bound up in and displayed most prominently to us by Jesus all of them. So I invite you, receive Jesus today. Behold with us, other believers in this room, the glory of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is my invitation to you from this psalm. And if you're already a believer, the response to today's message is really quite simply this: Behold the glory of God. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. The response to a psalm like this is worship, ascribing to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Let heaven and nature sing. Let us join the chorus. Glory to God. So I'm going to pray very briefly. And then I want us all to sing as though we've never sung before. If you're here today and you wish to repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus... When we start to sing, Brother Wayne Hetrick is going to be down front. And I don't want you to wait for the second note. I want you to come and put your faith and trust in him today. You can come and speak with one of our elders or pray down front. But I want all of us to respond in worship as we behold our God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ascribe to you the glory that is due your name. Father, we could never cease to sing praise the angels repeatedly singing the song Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father, we want to join in the songs of heaven. We want to join and give glory to the one to whom it is due. Father, you've revealed yourself in creation. You've made yourself known to all people. And your power is manifest and seen in a small way in the thundering and lightning of a storm. Lord, it's a power to judge. But Father, even in the storm, you are king. You are enthroned. You are sovereign over your people. And the psalmist says, may the Lord bless his people. May the Lord give strength to his people. And bless him with peace. Father, we long for you. We love you. And we praise you for sending us Jesus, who is the express image of the glory of God. And we pray in his name. Amen.